My grandfather was raised and for some time as an adult adhered to a very strict and often legalistic Wesleyan denomination known as the Pilgrim Holiness Church. And the story was told uh, that one time, probably back in the 50s or 60s, a visiting preacher came to his small country church and preached a sermon. And as this preacher was, was preaching, my grandfather was saying, Amen, Amen, as he was going down the line. And then the preacher began decrying televisions, to which my grandfather said, I don't believe that, right out in the middle of the sermon. To which the guest preacher, according to the stories that I've heard, apparently replied, boy, we've really got the devil stirred up, haven't we? Or something to that effect. Now, I make make mention of this story not to mount an attack upon televisions nor to offer a defense of them, but rather to illustrate how a sermon might at some time, take an unexpected turn, and how it could perhaps bring a different response in the listener than the response that they had been giving earlier on during the course of the sermon. And as we look to our text this morning, beginning in Amos chapter 2, verse 4, we find this kind of scenario going on in the message which the prophet Amos was delivering to the people of Israel. As we saw last Sunday in chapter 1 and up through chapter 2, verse 3, Amos was proclaiming oracles of judgment against the nations surrounding the people of Israel, the nations surrounding Israel and Judah. And we can imagine these announcements of judgment uh, against these neighbors that were sometimes hostile toward the Israelites, that these announcements of judgment might have elicited a hearty amen from Amos's audience. But, as we move further into chapter 2, we find Amos turning his sights one click closer to Israel by proclaiming judgment against Judah. And they probably would have been all right with that too. And then finally, he turns his sights directly towards his audience and lets them have the full blast of God's word of judgment. The previous oracles of judgment against these other nations had been two or three verses in length. But this oracle against Israel stretches from chapter 2, verse 6, down through verse 16, a full 11 verses. Though the Lord would indeed judge these other nations, as he had said, the number one target of the Lord's word through Amos was actually the northern kingdom of Israel, the people to whom he was speaking. So let's begin looking at our text. Amos chapter 2, beginning verse 4. We'll read down through verse 16, down through the end of the chapter. The prophet writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah and for four I will not revoke its punishment, because they rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. Their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send fire upon Judah, and it will consume the citadels of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four I will not revoke its punishment, because they sell the righteous for money, and the needy for a pair of sandals, those who pant after the very dust of the earth on the head of the helpless, and also turn aside the way of the humble, And a man and his father resort to the same girl in order to profane my holy name. On garments taken as pledges, they stretch out beside every altar. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them. Though his height was like the height of cedars, 
and he was strong as the oaks. I even destroyed his fruit above and his root below. It was I who brought you up from the land of Egypt, and I led you in the wilderness forty years, that you might take possession of the land of the Amorite. Then I raised up some of your sons to be prophets, and some of your young men to be Nazarites. Is this not so, O sons of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine, and you commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I am weighted down beneath you, as a wagon is weighted down when filled with sheaves. Flight will perish from the swift, and the stalwart will not strengthen his power, nor the mighty man save his life. He who grasps the bow will not stand his ground. The swift foot will not escape, nor will he who rides the horse save his life. Even the bravest among the warriors will flee naked in that day, declares the Lord. So as we look to this text this morning, we'll consider it under three main headings. First of all, don't be led by lies. Secondly, don't profane the Lord's name. And then thirdly, remember the Lord's gracious dealings. Don't be led by lies. Don't profane the Lord's name. Remember the Lord's gracious dealings. And so first of all, don't be led by lies. Verses 4 and 5, the Lord announces judgment against Judah. Even though Israel and Judah were formerly all one nation, they had separated from one another during the days of Rehoboam, which would have been somewhere in the neighborhood of 165 to 180 years prior to the ministry of Amos. As such, the northern kingdom would have rejoiced in an announcement of judgment against Judah. There had been war between Israel and Judah off and on during the time that they had been separate kingdoms. They would be glad to hear, no doubt, of judgment against Judah. Now, the particular charge that is leveled here against Judah is noticeably different from the charges that were leveled against the pagan nations in the earlier oracles. As we saw last week, the sins of those pagan nations, the sins with which they were charged were violations in in one way or another of, broadly speaking, the command to love your neighbor as yourself. These nations had committed horrible crimes and atrocities against other people, and it seems that they had committed these crimes against people of other nations and not of their own people. And the Lord's charge as he moves now to Judah is noticeably different. The Lord says that he will not revoke their punishment because they've rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. Their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. The nation of Judah would be judged because they had rejected the law of the Lord. The other nations, those six that we considered last week, did not have the law of the Lord. They didn't have special revelation the way that the nations of Judah and Israel did. If we may borrow the words of Romans chapter 9, verse 4, we could say that to the nation of Judah belonged the adoption as sons, the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. These things belonged to them in a way that they did not belong to the other nations. As Moses expressed it in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 32 to 34, Indeed, ask now concerning the former days which were before you, Since the day that God created man on the earth and inquire from one end of the heavens to the other, has anything been done like this great thing? Or has anything been heard like it? 
Has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire as you have heard it and survived? Or has a God tried to take to go to take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials, by signs and wonders, and by war, and by a mighty hand, and an outstretched arm, and by great terrors, as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? In other words, what happened to the nations of Judah and Israel was unique. The Lord had not done this with any other people. As Moses said in Deuteronomy 4, 7, and 8, What great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on Him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? Amos is announcing judgment against the descendants and heirs of those people to whom Moses was speaking there in Deuteronomy 4. They had experienced and received what no one else in the world had ever experienced or received. They had heard the voice of the Lord Almighty speaking to them out of the fire. They had received the law with all of its righteous statutes and judgments. And yet, instead of regarding that as a great treasure something to be cherished and believed and obeyed. The nation of Judah, in so many words, said, no thank you, not interested. They turned their back on the word of God, they rejected it, and they did not keep his statutes. And being no longer guided by the truth of the word of God, look what happened to them as we see at the end of verse 4. Their lies also have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. It's almost like we might say that this text is the Romans chapter 1 in regard to special revelation. Romans chapter 1 verses 20 and following describes how the peoples of the world had rejected God's general revelation of himself in nature and creation and in doing so became futile and their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal and incorruptible God for idolatrous images. Romans 1, it's a rejection of general revelation. Amos 2, we read of the decline of this people who not only had the general revelation of God in nature, but they also had the special revelation of God, His very Word. They rejected it, did not keep it. And what happened? Their lies led them astray. And this is what happens when the Word of God is rejected. People are led astray by lies. Notice here that people are going to believe something. There's no such thing as religious neutrality. We're either going to accept the word of God and seek to believe it and obey it, or else we're going to disbelieve it. And if we do not believe the word of God, then we're going to believe something else. Some people gravitate toward materialism, a belief that all that exists is just the material world and that when you die, you're dead, and that's it. There's no real point to anything. No design in the things that exist, no designer of the things that exist. And holding to such beliefs, people begin to live, at least in some measure, in accordance with those beliefs. I think it's difficult for someone to actually live with their beliefs in that system with complete consistency, but to greater or lesser extents, when people believe lies, they begin to live according to those lies. Other people are drawn toward other religions and spiritualities which the world offers. They walk after those lies which their fathers have embraced. If not their own actual physical fathers, then they follow in line with the lies put forward by other people 
who become their spiritual fathers, as it were. And some people are not quite sure what to believe, but the one thing they are willing to believe is that the word of God is not true, or at least they're willing to doubt it enough to live like they don't believe it. They reject the history of the word of God and what it says about the origins of the world. They reject the law of God and do not seek to obey it nor teach it to their children. They do not believe the testimony of the word of God that we are sinners in need of a savior. Nor do they believe the testimony of the word of God that Jesus Christ is that savior. They may want to describe themselves as agnostic and claim that they don't know what to believe. But whatever they may or may not believe, they believe that the word of God is wrong and they believe that enough to reject it and enough to live according to some other notion. And thus it is, to borrow the words of verse 4, that their lies lead them astray. As it turned out, there is no neutral ground here. We're either going to be led by lies and reject the word of God, or we're going to embrace the word of God and keep it and reject the lies. It will be one way or the other for every single person. And so, what will it be for you? Being here this morning, you are in a position at least somewhat analogous to the people of Judah. They had the word of God. You have the word of God. You're listening to it right now. Most of us this morning have a long history of hearing the word of God. Some of us have heard the word of God from our childhood or even our infancy on forward. Maybe some of us were exposed to the word of God later on. At the very least, we can say for sure that everyone here this morning is being exposed to the word of God. The question confronting us then is whether we will reject it, be led astray by lies, or whether we will embrace it, believe it, and obey it and be led by the truth. As stark as that may sound, those really are the only two options that we face. Christian historian Ian Murray was absolutely right when he said that Scripture asserts that the destruction of man's best interests is brought about by the reception of error. This is abundantly demonstrated in history. The man is blessed whose delight is in the law of the Lord. The ungodly are not so, but are like chaff which the wind drives away. When countries embrace a lie rather than God's word, there will be an irresistible descent into moral and spiritual darkness, demolished or empty churches, scarred lives, broken homes, and no hope of heaven are the sure result of listening to Satan instead of listening to God. Now those words are hauntingly true. Just Look at the world. Look at those places where the word of God has, by and large, been abandoned. What does their society look like? It doesn't look like a utopia. It doesn't look like some idyllic paradise, does it? Quite the opposite. By its very nature, the act of rejecting the word of God opens us up to lies, and being led by lies creates all kinds of problems. Lives become untethered. When the word of God is rejected, lives become subject to whatever wind happens to be blowing the hardest. Lives become aimless when they have no firm direction from the word of God, or if they do have some aim and purpose, it will often become dark and very sinister. People become increasingly wicked when they follow lies instead of following God. British philosopher C.E.M. Jode put it this way in 1940. He said, We have abolished the fear of God and instead we live in constant fear of man. We've done away with the idea of a hell in the future and have succeeded in turning our lives in this world into a living hell. This man was a philosopher who 
had rejected the word of God, and he saw the outcome of that. And later in life, he wrote a book, I uh, forget the exact title of it, but it was something like The Return of Belief or something like that. He uh, professed faith in Christ towards the end of his life. But he accurately observed what happens when the word of God is rejected. And it's not treasured and not kept. And as a result, people are led by lies. The nation of Judah chose poorly in this regard. Some of their fathers rejected the law and listened to lies, and the people of later generations followed after their forefathers in this regard. And the result would be judgment, as we see in verse 5. And as the recipients of greater revelation than the pagan nations around them had received, they would be subject to greater judgment. Again, the words of our Lord, Luke 12, 47, that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. Greater revelation brings greater responsibility. So we find the words Paul in Romans 2, 11 and 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. The nation of Judah was subject to a greater and more exacting judgment because they had the word of God and rejected it. May that not be true of any of us here today. Now, as we've said, the nation of Israel, who were the audience of Amos, were probably on board with everything that he had said to this point. But now he turns his sight on them. And in rapid fire, he tells them why God's judgments will come down on them. We find this in verses 6 through 8. Because they sell the righteous for money, the needy for a pair of sandals, these who pant after the very dust of the earth on the head of the helpless, also turn aside the way of the humble, and a man and his father resort to the same girl in order to profane my holy name. On garments taken as pledges, they stretch out beside every altar, and in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. This is our second point. Don't profane the Lord's name. The charge here in verse 6 is that of oppression. It's possible this could be uh, in reference to the bribery of judges in court cases uh, so as to ensure that the verdict of the judge will go in the way that the payer of the bribe desired and so that the righteous and needy would be deprived of the justice that they deserved. Or alternatively, this could be in reference to the selling of the righteous and the needy into slavery for the repayment of a debt. Now, the Old Testament law in Leviticus 25, verses 39 and 40, clearly made allowance for an Israelite to sell himself into slavery or servitude if he became poor and indebted. And so it's not the existence of slavery per se among the Israelites which would be objectionable here by the words of the prophet, but rather the overly harsh manner in which the poor were treated. The law of God not only made allowance for slavery in regard to indebtedness, but it also commanded generosity from the rich to the poor. So we find in Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 9, if there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers in any of your towns in the land in which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. Beware that there is no base thought in your heart, saying the seventh year, the year of remission is near, and your eye is hostile toward your poor brother, and you give him nothing. 
that he may cry to the Lord against you, and it will be a sin in you. The idea here is that the poor were being oppressed and being taken advantage of for apparently very small sums of money or property, seemingly for the price of a pair of sandals. And we have the same kind of thing going on in verse 7. New American Standard translates the beginning of verse 7 as those who pant after the very dust on the, of the earth on the head of the helpless. It can also be translated as the ESV rendered it, those who trample on the head of the poor. This was, this was what was happening. They were trampling on the poor. It was, under Jeroboam II, an era of prosperity in Israel, but not everyone was prospering. There were the righteous poor among them, and these righteous poor were becoming subject to the abuse of the rich, who in their desires to simply get what they wanted were willing to treat the poor with great contempt and wickedness in order to get ahead. They were, as we find in the middle of verse 7, turning aside the way of the humble. In other words, controlling the lives of the poor, shoving them around, so to speak, depriving them of their rights. And we see what could be one specific example of this in verse 8, where the people of Israel are described as stretching out beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. According to Exodus 22, 26, and 27, when there was a loan that was given, it was acceptable to take someone's cloak as a pledge that he would repay the debt. But the cloak had to be returned at nightfall. So the Lord says, if you ever take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you are to return it to him before the sun sets, for that is his only covering. It is his cloak for his body. What else shall he sleep in? And it shall come about that when he cries out to me, I will hear him, for I am gracious. And not only are they stretching out on these garments taken in pledge, they're doing so at illicit altars. They should have been worshiping the Lord in the place of his choosing, the temple in Jerusalem. But as it is, they're engaging in illicit worship and the worship of idols, and they're doing so at any place they choose to do so, and they are drinking the wine of those who have been fined. They're having a party, as it were, at the expense of those whom they had defrauded. This is bad from any angle you look at it. It's bad any way you look at it. But this is not the complete picture of the wickedness. We skipped over the final charge of wickedness there in verse 7, where we're told that a man and his father resort to the same girl. Now, Amos doesn't give us the precise context in which this was taking place, but it doesn't really matter. This is appallingly wicked. And the result is that the Lord's name is profaned. The Lord is dishonored by such wickedness. Amos has now hit his target. All along, he's been working up to delivering this message to the nation of Israel. And when he gets there, he hits them where they were not expecting him. They are judged as wicked because of the way that they ran roughshod over the poor and the helpless. They're judged as wicked because they profaned the name of the Lord by their wicked immorality. Now, Christian friends, let's take a good look at the sins here and let's look to ourselves. We heard earlier in our unison reading from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, that immorality and impurity and greed must not even be named among us, that there be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, but rather the giving of thanks, because no immoral or impure person or covetous man has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. Now, certainly there is forgiveness and grace to be found in Christ for the sins of immorality and impurity and greed, these are not unpardonable sins. But those who desire to be forgiven must repent of these things and pursue them no more. If these sins characterize you, 
then they bear witness that you do not belong to Christ and do not have an inheritance in his kingdom. Now, I trust that we do not need to spend long this morning on the issue of immorality, but let me simply say this, that as Christ's people, we've been bought with a price. We're not our own. We must, we must honor the Lord with our bodies. We must honor the Lord in the realm of sexuality. God created the institution of marriage to be the union of one man and one woman for life. Sexual expression must be confined to the bond of marriage. And so we read in Hebrews 13:4, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. And we also need to be looking, then, to the way that we treat the poor and the needy. It's not necessarily a sign of sin, but some people are richer and some people are poorer. Sometimes the difference between the rich and the poor can be explained simply by the fact that the people are different, have different desires and habits, different skills and abilities, different opportunities, and so on. Just because someone is rich and someone else is poor does not necessarily mean that the rich man was wicked in getting his wealth or that the poor man was sinned against so as to bring the result of his poverty. Sometimes those things happen, but not all the time. And ultimately, the Lord is sovereign over the haves and the have-nots, just as he is sovereign over everything else. And so uh, Hannah expressed it this way in 1 Samuel 2, verse 7. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. And while that is true, what we must diligently guard against is greed. Because greed was in, in the background to this unfeeling treatment of the poor that we see here in Amos chapter 2. It was greed that was driving these people to sell the poor for money for a pair of sandals. Greed was at work when these people were actively harming the poor and taking advantage of them for their own gain. That's what was going on here in Israel. It was an active oppression in which people were intentionally harming the poor for their own gain. And that is wicked. But we must realize also that greed can be at work when the poor are not actively persecuted. Greed can sometimes be at work when the poor are simply overlooked and neglected. Greed can be at work when we're unwilling to open our hands at all to the poor. Sometimes it might be thoughtlessness, sometimes perhaps something else. But as the people of God, we must not only avoid all overt and actual oppression of the poor, but we must also avoid overlooking them and forgetting them. Now, to be sure, the sin here in verses 6 through 8 is the active oppression of the poor. Amos is not charging the people with the neglect of the poor, but rather outright oppression. And so Proverbs 22, 22 says, Do not rob a poor man because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate. That's what was taking place here. These poor were being afflicted, if not robbed, more or less. But as we heard from Deuteronomy 15, the people were responsible not only to take care of the poor by refraining from oppression, but they were also to deal generously with the poor, to lend to them and help them. Likewise, Proverbs 19.17, One who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. And in the New Testament, James 1.27, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God, our Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep one's self unstained by the world. So we're supposed to take care of the poor both negatively and positively. Negatively speaking, we avoid oppression, robbery, and mistreatment. Positively speaking, we're to do them good. And now comes the tricky part. 
How is this to be done? Well, I'm certain that more could be said than I will say this morning. But what I will say is that as Christians, we must take this to heart, that we are to positively and outwardly do good to the poor. And in saying that, I'm not implying that Christian faithfulness in this regard requires us to take a political position that gets the government involved in this. I'm not talking about the government helping the poor here. I'm talking about you helping the poor. And sometimes the poor need help financially, but sometimes other things are needed than finances. Sometimes they need practical, hands-on assistance, maybe uh, doing upkeep around their home or something of that nature. Sometimes they need someone to invest in their lives so as to teach them a life skill so that they can get a good job and so on. There's a lot of truth in that old adage about giving someone a fish and having fed him for a day versus teaching him how to fish and having fed him for life. The Apostle Paul's dictum was that if anyone is not willing to work, he is not willing to eat, uh, that he is not to eat either. And so obviously there, there needs to be wisdom and discretion involved in how we help the poor financially and otherwise. But nevertheless, it must be done. Sometimes we as Christians have time and opportunity to give this kind of aid to the poor firsthand. Maybe we know someone and have a relationship with them and we can help. Sometimes our position is such that it makes sense to give to responsible Christian organizations that help the poor. Organizations like rescue missions and crisis pregnancy centers, responsible Christian organizations that do disaster relief or give medical aid. Our own church has a benevolence fund in which we try to help those who are in need. If a church member is in financial need, we're willing to give them a check. If a non-member reaches out to us, we're willing to help them with food. At the end of the day, we need to be mindful of the poor. This can take different shapes and different forms. I don't want to impose the same form on everyone as a matter of necessity. But nevertheless, we must be mindful of the poor and not neglect them. And so the Apostle Paul commanded in 1 Timothy 6.18 that those who are rich in this present life must devote themselves to good works to be generous and ready to share. And so may our Lord deliver us from all forms of greed and all of its manifestation, whether that be outright oppression or whether it be simply just negligence or any other expression of greed. Don't profane the Lord's name by wickedness. And this then brings us to our third point for this morning. Remember the Lord's gracious dealings. We find in verses 9 and following how the Lord turned their collective memory back to what he had done for them in the days gone by. He had destroyed the Amorite before them. The Amorite was the name that was given to the nations that inhabited Canaan before the Israelites came. The Lord was the one who had destroyed those nations and had brought them down before the Israelites in the conquest of the land. The Lord was the one who had led the people out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt. The Lord was the one who had led them for 40 years in the wilderness. The Lord was the one who had raised up some of their sons to be prophets, to speak the word of the Lord to them. He had raised up some of their sons to be Nazarites, to be specially set apart to the Lord. And he asks at the end of verse 11, the Lord asks them, Is this not so, O sons of Israel? And if the sons of Israel were being honest, they would have to agree that indeed it was so. The Lord had indeed done these great and gracious things for them. But there was a great ingratitude that occurred. The people went astray like they didn't care. 
The Lord had redeemed them from slavery and had led them in the wilderness and drove out their enemies before them and settled them in the promised land. The Lord had sent his word through the prophets and given them tangible images of holiness through the Nazarites. But the people rejected the word of God from the prophets. They did what they could to make the Nazarites unholy. The national life of Israel was like Psalm 78 on repeat. Psalm 78 is one of the longest psalms in the Psalter, and it works through the various ways in which the generation in the wilderness, and even some of the early generations in the Promised Land, forgot the deeds of the Lord and rebelled against Him and did not believe in Him. Psalm 78 shows, again, both how this happened in the wilderness and also after they had settled in the Promised Land. And what we gather from the the history of Israel as a whole is that this problem never really went away, not permanently. The wicked behavior of the people revealed that they had effectually forgotten what the Lord had done. Even if they did recall it in theory, it was only in theory, and it had no effect on them in practice. If it did, they wouldn't be doing the things that they're doing. They wouldn't be selling the righteous for money. They'd not be oppressing the poor and worshiping idols and engaging in egregious immorality. As it is, the Lord says in verse 13 that he's weighed down with them, that is, with their behavior, with their sins. Hence the judgment of verses 14 through 16. This would be a judgment in which strength and skill and former physical accomplishment would count for nothing. To borrow the words of Psalm 32, 16 and 17, the king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. The Lord would judge them. Their strength and skill would avail them nothing in that day. The lesson to be learned here for us is that we must not forget the Lord and the greatness of his works on our behalf. These Israelites had the, verses, uh, had the events of verses 9 through 11 in their national consciousness. And the Lord even appealed to their own knowledge and their own implied acknowledgement of these facts when he asked them, is this not so? He expected that they would agree that, yes, this was so. But they forgot what the Lord had done for them. Or if they had not forgotten the facts of the case, they had certainly forgotten in the sense of allowing those facts to have any effect upon their hearts and lives. And so, brothers and sisters, may this not be so with us. May it not be that we would forget the great works of the Lord and thus profane His name by unbelief or ungodliness or carnal wickedness. Indeed, those who... For those who claim the name of Christ, the Lord has done and is doing much more for us than he had done for Israel of old, as stated in these verses. Indeed, these events here, described in verses 9 through 11, were only shadows that were pointing forward to the great realities that have been accomplished for us in Christ. The redemption of slavery from slavery in Egypt was but a shadow in compared to the substance that we possess now in Christ. Our redemption from the bondage in which we found ourselves, bondage to sin and our flesh and the devil. For those of us who are in Christ, that bondage is over. We've been brought out. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed and we've been transferred from the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God's beloved Son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Christ died and rose again for us so that our sins would be forgiven. And though those defeated foes of ours still rage against us, the conquest will be final. 
when Christ returns and Satan is cast once for all into the lake of fire for all eternity. And one day, we too will cross the Jordan and arrive in the promised land and our enemies will be finally defeated and we will receive our allotted portions in the new heavens and the new earth with all the Israel of God. That's where we're going. We're, we're heading to the promised land. We've been redeemed from slavery. We're headed to the promised land. And uh, thus it is that this time in which we live is our sojourn in the wilderness. We're delivered from slavery, but we're not home yet. In this way, the years in the wilderness become a type, as it were, of the church age. And if you have any doubts about that, I'd encourage you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and see the way that Paul draws the parallels between the wilderness generation and the church. And notice how he draws warnings from their sins, the sins that were committed in the wilderness, and applies them to the church. Look at Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 and see how the writer to the Hebrews applies Psalm 95 to these early Christians. And what was Psalm 95 about? What was David speaking of in Psalm 95? He was drawing a warning from the wilderness generation. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did when they provoked me in the time of rebellion in the wilderness. So Christian friends, we're, we're in the wilderness now. And God is, is leading us. And we sing hymns like, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. We're going, therefore, to the promised land, but we're not there yet. And so far be it from us to harden our hearts when we hear the Lord's voice. Far be it from us, therefore, to practically turn our backs on all that the Lord has done for us in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ as if that were not true. That's what we do when we live in rebellion against God. We live as if we had forgotten the gospel, had forgotten what God had done for us, and forgotten, actually, the God who had done these things for us. And so, Christian friends, remember what the Lord has done in Christ. Remember the good news of the gospel and live accordingly in holiness and reverence for God. To forget is to turn aside to great wickedness. And that only leads to judgment, judgment from which... No one of us can save ourselves. The call of the Lord's word is today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Remember what Christ has done. Repent and believe. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We ask, Lord, that we would not neglect or forget your law. We would not forget what you have done for us. Lord, we ask that you would give us great reverence for you, great gratitude for what you have done for us. And Lord, grant to us that we might live holy and godly lives in this present age as we anticipate one day crossing the Jordan, taking our portion in the new heavens and the new earth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.